Turn with me to John chapter five. And I've entitled the message this morning, A Sticky Sabbath. And when I say sticky, I'm talking molasses, honey type sticky. I mean, this is... This was a sticky situation that we're going to find Jesus in. You know, last week we looked at his healing of the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. And we had said this was John's, his third hand-picked sign to do what? To convince his readers. He he chose seven of them. This is his third. But he he wanted to convince his readers to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because by believing, they might have life in his name. He gives that purpose statement at the back of the book. But one of the things we pointed out last week, and we're going to kind of develop more today in the, in the weeks coming up, this third sign was a little bit different than the previous two. And the reason for that is, is twofold. One, it was a public sign with a water, wider audience of witness, basically. They, more people saw this sign. The, other one, the, the first two he recorded were little clandestine, not as many people knew, the water to wine, the healing of the nobleman's son. This one is public. This is out in the open. And then secondly, and this was what makes it so sticky, is he healed this man on the Jewish Sabbath. What he did, I believe, is Jesus created willingly and intentionally this sticky situation for a couple of reasons. And you say, well, most of us are like, we, we hate conflict. I mean, most people I talk to, they don't be like, oh yeah, I love conflict. Send me to take care of that difficult conversation. We're all like, oh, I don't want to have this conversation. I don't even want to get into this. And we, we avoid conflict. Jesus, we're going to see, he creates conflict, but he doesn't do it for fun. He's not just interested in like messing with somebody. That's not why he's doing it. He's actually doing it to confront false religious teaching in this area, especially Sabbath area. But he's also doing it to further clarify his identity, who he is, and the authority by which he has ministry on the earth, by which he's healing, by which he's doing these signs and wonders. And so he's going to use this as an opportunity to correct really a faulty understanding of the Sabbath. The religious leaders of the day, they're never going to buy into Jesus's view. They're always going to hate him for his understanding of the Sabbath. In fact, it's probably one of the the reasons as we look across the gospels that got them riled up the most, that got them the most upset was when Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. In fact, those of you that have uh, the the John notebooks, you've got your QR, uh, QR code sticker back there. We added another chart to that link at our website, and it describes the Sabbath controversies in the Gospels. This is one of them. And so we've got a list of all the Sabbath controversies that you can find in the Gospels. It's found on our webpage at that QR, that, at that QR, I can't even speak. Is it QR or QC? Josh, I always screw that up. Okay. I always mess that up. So it's QR. I was saying it right. I just started to, to second guess myself there. But there's a QR code sticker back there. If you scan it, it'll take you to a link on our website that's got this chart. Okay, that's all the introduction. Let's dive into the verses here. And I had uh, Leonard read verses 10 through 16, but I'm actually going to pick up at the very backside of verse 9. Verse 9, we would call that letter B at the end there. And it says this, and that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. This is very significant to our present story. In fact, this is going to prompt this long, I'm calling it a dialogue, but, but really when you get to about verse 19, it's all read from that point forward in, uh, in, the, in the text, right? So it's, it's more of a monologue. This is what's going to prompt it though. And it's significant not only to this miracle, but to the life of Jesus, his ministry going forward, this issue of, of the Sabbath day. And those of you that know your Old Testament, you know that the Sabbath day 
part of the Ten Commandments, right? It was, it was a day that they were to set apart, the Jewish people were to set apart, according to the Mosaic Law. Why? Well, it pictured the, the six days of creation where God worked to create, and he took the seventh day off. He, he took that as a day of rest. And they were also to cease from their work one day a week and rest from their work. They weren't to engage in any work, but the problem became, and the, the difficulty in understanding this became is, how do you define work? That was the question. And for the Orthodox Jews, the rabbinical Jews, they had a passion for definition. You could give them credit. They liked to sit around and splice hairs on the top of a pin tip, you know, and, and to try to define things. And this is what we're going to see here. And, and in this day, they began to focus on work being any physical activity of any sort. That's kind of how they started to take it. And they began to, de- they began to define different aspects of physical work, which was breaking of this commandment. And so they began to try to define is, well, is this work? Is this work? Is this? Yep, that, uh, that's work, but that's not work. And, and they would just have all of these distinctions. And so they had developed this level of definition. The problem was, is they had missed the heart of the Sabbath command. And the heart of the Sabbath, it's, it's going to be brought out clearly here with a verse in Exodus. The heart of the Sabbath was, don't attempt to continue working to get ahead on that day. Don't attempt to make more money. Don't attempt to do things that normally take human care and attention to be successful at. And on that day, even if you needed to water your crops, trust the Lord. He's going to take care of your crops. And on that day, even though you saw some bug manifestations that you need to get out there and treat and get those bugs off your, you know what? That day, you're going to trust the Lord because the Lord wants to provide for you. The Lord wants to protect you. The Lord wants to care for your family. In fact, Exodus 34, 21 says this, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. And then notice what he, how he clarifies this in Exodus 34 for them. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. What's he talking about? He's talking about their livelihood. He's talking about their agricultural livelihood. And see, the temptation for anybody is, if I can make $10 over six days, I wonder how much I can make if I work seven days. And the problem with the thinking there is it's, number one, it's greedy because how much is enough? We know the answer to that, right? Just a little bit more. That's how much is enough. And then when you get that little bit more, then, then how much is enough? Just a little bit more. And so we keep pushing for money, for greed. Why do we push for money and greed oftentimes? Because we're looking for security, right? When the toilet breaks, I don't want to be scrapping pennies out of my couch, right, I, to, to get it fixed. I want to be able to go to my savings account and scratch a check. There's security there, right? We want security. We want protection. We want provision. The Jews built into their law was designed to not be self-reliant, but on a weekly basis be reminded, God wants to provide for you. God is going to provide for you. And I believe God was saying, in, in a sense, test me. Man, test me and see how good I am. Test me and see. You're going to bed before the Sabbath starts on on Friday night, and you see the evidence of bugs, and you just know that if you don't get to it on the Sabbath, this crop is going down. Test me and see, and watch when you come back what I'm going to do to those bugs. And God wanted to do that for the entire nation. They were going to stand out like a sore thumb amongst the nations around them that were just like our nation, anything for a buck. 
I'm just going to drive and drive and drive for a buck. And then these other nations were to look at Israel and go, they take a day off and look at their crops. Like their tomatoes are twice the size of ours or whatever. You know, I mean, it's, it was designed for them to stand out and then designed to give them an opportunity to point these Gentile nations to their God and say, he's good. You want to take him as your God and you want to reject all these false gods. Our God will provide for you. That way they were designed to be the megaphone of God in the Old Testament. So you see that they, their focus began to get off in this time. And, and obviously it's still off, I believe, in, in, even in this day if I could humbly say that. But it was just a day, if you want to put it this way, it was just a day to reorient their thinking heavenward. Back off of the grind, get off of the treadmill, and put your eyes on the one who actually matters. And this was a designed way in their law to do that. So the difference of opinion between Jesus and the religious workers about what constituted work is going to become a major point of contention between him and the, and the leaders throughout his ministry. And one of the things that you'll see is Jesus, I don't think Jesus was brazen about this, but I think that Jesus directly took things on when they needed to be taken on. And in one area, you see that if you look at all of his recorded miracles, all of his recorded miraculous healings, a third of them were done on the Sabbath. So he's, he's pushing the envelope here. He's making them uncomfortable with their definition. He's challenging their thinking. Now, we're going to see some people respond to his challenges. Some people don't, obviously, and they get upset. And this is going to be part of the motivation uh, by which they end up killing him. But uh, one example of this is Jesus and his disciples were walking through grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain for a snack. And you know, the Pharisees got very upset because they said, you're harvesting. You're doing work. You're harvesting. And Jesus is like, no, we're just eating a snack. <laughs> we're, we're just getting a little bit of sustenance so that we can walk and continue on this, on this hike. And Jesus went on to tell them in this instance, this is found in Mark chapter 2, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's saying, we're, we're not under the authority of someday worshiping it as if that is life itself. It was designed for the rest of man. It was designed for the Jew to, again, reorient their thinking to a good God above. It was designed to allow them to stop trusting in themselves to provide for all of their needs and to at least one day remember, you know what? It doesn't matter how hard I work, how hard I do this, how hard I do this. Ultimately, my success is due to him. That's what it was designed to do. The Sabbath, again, was this uh, this weekly reminder, walking with him was actually the key to their success, not working harder. That's what religious Jews and, and secular even Jews would think. If I just work a little bit harder, I can make a little bit money. And they didn't realize the tie-in was, no, if I just work when God tells me to and I rest when God tells me to, I'm going to find success because I want to please him. And that's really what it's all about. So this, again, was one of those opportunities for Jewish people to realize that. But you can see that, that they've got a difference of opinion. We're going to see that as we kind of go forward in our text. One of the things that we know is that God was to be worshiped on the Sabbath. The person who was to rest, it was the worshiper. They were actually designed to rest. And so it gave them this opportunity to rest their bodies. It gave them this, this opportunity to refresh their minds and really just think about and enjoy the goodness of God. 
Just, just on a weekly basis, this opportunity to be reminded of those things. And so the Sabbath became a burden because of the religious leaders. It became this heavy burden on the people of Israel. And as such, they began to have inconsistent and hypocritical applications of the original intent of the Sabbath day. And I love Matthew 12, 11 through 12, because it really brings out the heart of Jesus Christ as it relates to the Sabbath. Notice what he says here. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You see what he's saying there? If you're doing something good for somebody else on the Sabbath, that's not work. That's not trying to get ahead in life. That's not trying to make an extra buck. That's actually concerning yourself with the very heart of God and what he's concerned about. And what's so ironic when Jesus says this in Matthew 12 is the Jews of the day, if they had a sheep fall into a pit, in other words, their life was endangered. Their well-being was endangered. You know, sheep get very stressed out easily. You want to get that sheep out of the pit. You want to get it into a safe spot. They would do that on the Sabbath. But when Jesus started healing people on the Sabbath, oh no, that's work. That's work. You got to let that crippled man wait till tomorrow, right? Jesus said, I'm going to free him up today. And if you got a problem with that, you got a problem with the interpretation of the Sabbath and God's heart behind it. But notice it's lawful to do good. It's lawful to do good. And so Jesus has done a good thing here, freeing a man who's been crippled for 38 years. And now they're trying to criticize him for it. Not only criticize him, but they're like, this guy deserves to die. He's the extreme of religious hypocrisy. In fact, uh, not to pick on modern day Judaism, but just to give you an understanding that there's still confusion as it relates to the Sabbath. When you, when you look at modern day Judaism, especially the Orthodox thinking on Sabbath restrictions, you know that they cannot write, they can't erase, they can't tear paper on the Sabbath. They can't have any business transactions, which that kind of fits a little bit more with the, the original intent. But there's no driving or riding in cars or other vehicles. There's no shopping. There's no using the phone. Poor teenagers in a Jewish house. How do they survive, right? No using the phone. You can't turn on or turn off anything which uses electricity. No cooking, no baking, no gardening, no yard work, no doing laundry. I haven't heard of one extreme example of an Orthodox group that limited the number of squares on toilet paper that you could tear off on the Sabbath. And so you see the ridiculous nature of this. You see the ridiculous nature of religion. I, you know, religion is something I like to pick on often <laughs> because it, what it does is it takes the focus off of the majors and it puts it on the minors. And you can see that happening here. Lots of misunderstanding. And so we see, as we go back to the text now in verse 10, that they're all riled up. These Jewish religious, uh, religious leaders are upset about Jesus's healing of this man on the Sabbath. In fact, we get it as it comes through. They're not talking to Jesus at this point. We're going to find out that Jesus has disappeared into the multitudes. So they're going to find, uh, he's going to be found in the temple later. So they're talking to the man. And what they do is they see this man carrying his mat, which according to their definition of the Sabbath, he's doing work. Because they, uh, rabbinic Judaism had come up with a saying that if you carried anything from a public place to a private place on the Sabbath, you did work and you, were, you, were, you deserved to be stoned. It was a death penalty. And we're going to see why that may play into the man's response here. But let's look at what they said 
In fact, the word said, when it says, therefore the Jews said to him who was cured, it's in the imperfect tense. The idea is they kept on saying this to him continually. And so you get this picture of these upset Jewish leaders, and they're just chasing this guy down, repeating over and over again, what you're doing's wrong. What, sir, what you're doing's wrong. Excuse me, sir, what you're doing's wrong. What you're doing is against the Sabbath. And they were just chasing this man around intensely, following him and repeating this saying. And what they're saying is, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed, your mat, really. It wasn't, it wasn't like he was carrying a mattress. You know, we get that, that picture. So it was a mat that w- typically would roll out that they would sit on while they were waiting at the pool. But one of the things that you'll find is it, you'd be very hard-pressed to find carrying your bed in the Mosaic Law. That carrying your bed is somehow against the Sabbath in the Mosaic Law. You're not going to find that in Scripture. Again, it had developed through rabbinical Judaism, their, their desire to define what work was and just kind of carrying it too far in order to protect the command. But again, they missed the heart of the command. In fact, what you're going to see here, it's, it's, it's incredible. I'll bring it out now. But notice what they're doing. They said, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. They don't even ask him. They never ask him, why are you carrying your bed? He, he's going to tell them because he's, I think, feeling threatened. They don't even care. Their practical application coming out of rabbinical Judaism was that, that this was work according to Mosaic law. That was, that was their practical application. This guy is working. He's breaking the Sabbath. And so again, they're missing the heart of the Sabbath. They're missing the heart of what God designed the Sabbath to be. They're putting their own kind of definition on the letter of this law. They simply just went outside of the bounds of what God wanted to communicate here. That's typically what religion does, right? They make too much of the little things. And so notice too, uh, I mentioned this, there's no question here why. They automatically went to the regulation he was breaking. And it just reminds me of like the code enforcement officers in our day. You just watch these religious people and they just, they're just walking around like looking for people. Oh, let me, let me, he gets a demerit. She gets a demerit. Oh, I think she was trying to clip her toenail. Is that, was that work? Did Rabbi so-and-so say you can't clip? That might be work. We have to come back and check on her. And they're just walking around with their clipboards. And it's so interesting too, like religious people in a day, they do the same exact thing. They're more focused on the sin out there than what's going on in here disrupting fellowship with the Lord. You know, it's like uh, people that are more, con- more concerned about what's going on in our culture and all the, all the sinful people out there. And then they come home and they're a terrible husband and they're a terrible wife and they're a terrible father and they're cheating their employer out of time and they're complaining and gripe. They're leading the gripe session at the coffee pot at work because they're so religious and they're walking around with their clipboard marking everybody else's demerits down because it makes them feel better about themselves. That's exactly what religion does. That's exactly what legalists do. And they typically set up standards that they can meet, but their neighbor can't. Because that makes me feel a little bit better about myself. And so you kind of see that borne out in the lives of these religious leaders. They're just looking and, and observing and waiting for someone to break the law so that they can point it out to them and get in their face about it. It's terrible. And as I mentioned earlier, part of the reason he, as we're going to see in verse 11, because you know, he looks a little ungrateful for the healing. Because immediately they start drilling him. He's like, oh, yeah, I was, the guy told me to. I, I mean, <laughs> you, you probably want to talk to him. Like, he told me to do it. I just did what he said. And he's kind of pointing the finger at Jesus. And part of the reason, again, as I mentioned, is publicly 
And privately, the teaching was, if you did what he did, you deserve death. And so he might've been afraid for his life. We don't, we don't really know what his motivation is. It never comes out. But it kind of leads to this interesting dialogue in verses 11 through 13. Let's read those. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. So basically he said, I'm just doing what the man who healed me told me to do. And he's, again, he's trying to shift focus off of himself. And then they asked him, and I want you to notice something here. If you remember from last week, there were three commands that Jesus gave this man. But I want you to notice what the religious leaders pick up on and what they leave out, okay? And I want you to, I want you to notice based on his response in verse 11, they left something out. Notice what they left out. We'll point it out here in a second. But it's, it's actually mind-blowing because what they left out is they ignored the fact that the man had just said that Jesus had made him well. You see how they've just bypassed that phrase in their question? Who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Not who's the man who made you well. It's like they didn't even want to acknowledge the miracle. It's like they wouldn't even let their mind focus on the miracle because they, they had their code enforcement hat on. They had their clipboard out. There was no blank space to mark down a miracle. There was only spaces to mark down where people had messed up and broken the law. And so they're just, they're just on it like a bee. They're just on it like a code enforcement officer would be. And by the way, if you're a code enforcement officer here this morning, we still like you, but you know. You know the reputation. So I'm just kind of using that generically for the reputation. I just thought about that kind of hit my mind there as I'm talking about code enforcement officers. So the only thing that that religious leaders could see was the fact that he was breaking their definition of work on the Sabbath. And what's crazy about that, forget about the messianic miracle. We're not looking at that. Forget about the fact that this physical healing just changed the man's life. 38 years crippled, couldn't get into the pool, had to have someone drag him there and put him there. And this man is now walking and a capable member of society. Didn't care about that. Nothing of that. None of this mattered to them as much as carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And I love Jesus. I mean, I love Jesus, but I love Jesus's words in Matthew 23. He's speaking with aggressive language to the Pharisees. Let's say that. He's challenging them. He's correcting them. One of the things he says, I think fits really well here. Matthew 23, 24. He called the Pharisees blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And that's exactly what these guys are doing here. They're straining out gnats, swallowing a camel because they are missing the whole point. In fact, what did they miss? Well, they missed the connection that we pointed out last week in Isaiah 35, that the Messiah would heal the lame. That was an indicator that when lame people were getting healed, that the Messiah was on the scene and they missed it. They didn't want to see it because they were convinced that a Messiah wouldn't heal, breaking their own man-made laws and definitions about the Sabbath. Thus, he couldn't be the Messiah. Instead of saying, he just did something pretty miraculous, that might need to overrule our interpretation of this command. Maybe we don't have it right. And these are men that studied the word of God. In fact, if you would have been there that day and said, could you quote for me Isaiah 35, one through seven? They would have been like, sure. Boom, 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 boom. Just ripped it off for you. No problem. They had large amounts of scripture memorized. They knew the passage. They were ignoring it. They missed it. Terrible. And just terrible to think about it. In fact, 
That's why we always joke, you know, Bible knowledge is not about winning Bible trivia. <laughs> Do they even have Bible trivia for adults anyways? I don't, I mean, I, I see it with kids. It's not about Bible trivia. It's about the person whom the Bible reveals. It's about an intimate relational intimacy with the Savior of the world, not your Bible trivia. Not whether or not you know Greek this or Greek that or this Greek word. You know, I know agape, I know. Great, awesome. Does it lead you to a person? That's what it's all about. And that's why these guys had all the Bible trivia down. Isaiah 35, oh, boom, boom, boom. Isaiah 53, boom, boom, boom. They could have quoted anything. In fact, many of these Pharisees, to finalize their bar mitzvah at age 13, they had to have the entire Pentateuch memorized, the first five books of the Bible. So they had their Bible trivia down. They knew their knowledge, but man, they were missing the point. They were swallowing some camels. Some camels were getting through the filter here. I mean, it was just going down, choking them on, on these kind of things that they should have known. So naturally then, these guys are saying, Who told you to do this? They're trying to track down the one who told him to take up his bed. Why? So they could punish that man. They didn't know it was Jesus. They didn't know who it was at this point, but that's what they wanted to do. Interestingly enough, Jesus simply moved on to the temple. It's probably where he was heading after this divine appointment with this man. He mixes in with the multitudes. Remember, it's feast time. So there's lots of people in Jerusalem. He just slides into the crowd, heads off to the temple. So the guy doesn't even know where he's at. And the fact that he didn't know where he was at still tells us that Jesus probably wasn't as well known in Judea at this time as he probably was in Galilee. Remember, he's he's already had a tour of Galilee. We looked at that at the end of John chapter four, but he's not as well known at this stage in his ministry. Now the scene is gonna shift to the temple compound. We've got up there, Mark, that's the pool of Bethesda, the pools. There was a double pool there at the time where this man was healed. And now we're gonna shift to the temple compound. Okay, and this is where Jesus is going to track this man down in verse 14. Verse 14, we see the scene shifts, and it reads this. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to, said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Again, he, apparently the healed man has walked there now. He's walked from the, t- the pools to the temple. He's in there, and, and notice who tracks down who. This guy doesn't know who. He can't pick Jesus out of a crowd. Right? He saw him briefly, he can't pick him out. So Jesus tracks him down and, and he wants to communicate a message here. And I love what he says, uh, a couple of things here in the language. He says, see, that's the very first word. It's a, it's a marker or a particle of exclamation. It's given in command form. And the idea is he's calling his attention to something present. And if you could just picture Jesus, he's probably like, see, he's pointing at his legs, probably. See, you have been made well. Okay, so he's kind of drawing his attention to the miracle. Again, it's, he's identifying himself. I'm the man that healed you. It's basically this way of what he does that. And then I love what Jesus says here. This is so sweet and just tender. You have been made well. Perfect tense verb. Point in time, completed action in the past with ongoing results. The idea is you have been healed and you remain healed is the idea. I love, I love that emphasis. He could have just said you were healed. But he doesn't do that. You were healed and you remain healed. Again, just kind of a a good news message here from Jesus. And one of the things that we see is when Jesus healed him, he healed him completely. And I love to think about that with Jesus. This wasn't a partial healing. This wasn't a part-time healing. This wasn't a temporary healing. This was designed to be a permanent healing that this man could enjoy the rest of his life. But what's really interesting, and this is, I think it's, it's fascinating, it was a fascinating study for me, is the very next phrase. 
think this is something we want to slow down and look at because we get a small indication from this next phrase, not only from how he says it, but, but the grammar that he uses, which will bring out that it may have been personal sin in this man's life that caused his infirmity, that caused his handicap state. Let's look at that because he says, sin no more. And then he says, lest a worse thing come upon you. This sin no more, it's a command. It's a, and not only that, but it's present active. The idea is right now, immediately response, no delay. The idea is don't go on sinning. In fact, it's, it's negated. The command is negated. So in the Greek language, that can mean one of two things. It can mean stop an action that's in progress right now. It's a way of saying stop that immediately, an action in progress. Or it can mean right now and going forward, sin no more. And I, I kind of take the second aspect of that here. Sometimes it's, it seems to say, stop doing what you're doing right now. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think he's saying, going forward, sin no longer is kind of the idea, I think, of what he's communicating here. And then he uses this additional word here in the Greek. It's, it's translated no more for us, but it seems to point to a process of sinfulness in the past. Because the word itself means no more, no further, no longer. So the idea is that there was some kind of sin that he had been engaged in before that had somehow caused his infirmity. And now Jesus is saying, you've been made well. Don't go on sinning like you did. It's kind of the, the idea. So he's, he's kind of drawing that out. So obviously Jesus knows a little bit about this man's past. But this is what introduces a very interesting thought. Because so many of us and so many of people throughout the course of history have, have looked at somebody that's going through health issues or looked at, a, at an infirmed person or looked at somebody that's going through a lot, and we, we just tend to have this natural thought, I wonder what they did to have that happen to them. And I wonder, I wonder what they did because God seems to be getting them. I don't get to play golf a lot, but I got to play a couple months ago. A couple of guys in the church took me. I just had a great day golfing, which is very rarely can I say that because I don't play that much. But I was hitting some longer shots and whatever. And I remember one of the guys said, man, you must be living right or something. You, you must be a preacher. God takes care of his own, you know, or something like that. And we were just having fun. It was all joking and in fun. But, you know, we, we tend to have that mindset sometime. If someone's really going through a hard time, we start, oh, I wonder, I wonder if God's getting them. I wonder what they did. What's happening back there? You know, what are you doing in, in, behind closed doors? What's going on in the dark? You know, kind of deal. And we, we got in this mindset. I want to talk real quickly just about this concept, kind of a general concept, and then bringing it into to some more detailed concepts. But the Bible is clear, and I think we, we want to start here, that the wages of sin is death. There's always consequence for sin, period. The consequences are what vary per situation and per individual and God's plan for that individual. And this is one of the things where this is always above our pay grade. So somebody may be going through a health issue. It could be because they're under divine discipline, but it could be because they're just going through a health issue. And that's above our pay grade to really accurately evaluate most of the time. Okay. But it does happen. That's the other thing that's really fascinating is because you could commit a sin and we'll, we'll flesh this out later. You could, as a believer who's trusted in Christ, who's had your sins paid for in full, you could commit a sin, be completely confident that your sin is forgiven from a divine perspective and yet still suffer dire temporal consequences on this earth from that same sin, even though it's forgiven. 
is to be removed. There's, there's temporal consequences that sometimes come out of sin. And it's like we've said often, but I'll just repeat again. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. And that's one thing to, to remember. And it's not designed to scare you. It's just to say, God doesn't want us living in sin. He wants us to be in fellowship with him because there are consequences associated with sin. And I believe when God having to observe us going through some of the consequences that we go through, I think it breaks his heart because I think he loves us. I don't think he's up there going, yeah, that's great. I'm glad they're suffering. And anybody that's ever had a child knows exactly what I'm talking about. My child, one of my children, five of them (laughs) over time, can be an absolute jerk to me when they were little. They're they're great now. They're all perfect now. Um, but when they were little, be an absolute jerk to me, and I could be really upset and discipline them and send them to their room, and you know what? After about five minutes hearing them cry, I mean, it breaks my heart. I don't want to hear them cry. I don't want to hear them cry all day. I don't, even though they deserved it. No, even though their little five-year-old fist was shaking right in my nose, you know, or whatever, proverbially, proverbially. none of them did that. But the point is this. There are going to be consequences sometimes to sin. So let's just kind of look at that a little bit more closely. Sometimes the consequences of sin are simply an outcome of living in a sin-infected world. In other words, things break down. Things being sometimes your body, your mind, right? These kind of things break down. And so not every health issue is a divine discipline situation. And go with me real quick. We'll get there to John 9 at some point in the future. John 9 verse 1 Notice this mindset of the disciples. This is kind of also a unique situation, but I think this point is also communicated here, this this sin-infected world. Now, as Jesus passed by, verse 1, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And then this is the typical mindset of of many people, verse 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? We'll get into the details there, but sometimes there was some Jewish thought that if a child, like, kicked his mom too hard in the womb that he would be blind when he was born. And there was all this kind of theory. So I was like, man, he was just an active baby. He probably got blind because he was beating the tar out of his mom, you know, or whatever. But Jesus then said in verse three, neither this man nor his parents sinned. That wasn't the reason for his blindness. It wasn't directly related to sin. This is obviously a unique case, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Sometimes the consequences are sin or just because we live in a sin-infested world. That's just the nature of it. We just experience some of those things in a, in a less than perfect world. Sometimes the consequences of sin are natural outflows of life. What a man sows, he'll also what? Reap. So again, you could have a man who, who gets in a vehicle, drives drunk, kills an innocent person, gets convicted of manslaughter, and spends the rest of his life in prison. That man could be a believer in Jesus Christ. In other, in, his sin has been paid for and has been forgiven, but he's going to suffer temporal physical consequences throughout the course of his life. And there may be some other consequences. Hearing his wife cry on the other end of the line because she's never going to see him again. Hearing his children cry and then eventually never coming to see him again. There's going to be consequences out of this action, even though conceptually his sin is forgiven. Number three, just another consequence can include sickness or health issues. Exactly what we're looking at here, and it's, I would make an argument, it's what's going on in John 5. And they're applied with divine specificity via divine discipline. Turn with me real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So we can kind of see this play out. This is right after our communion passage that we normally read. 
And it relates to the communion table for the Corinthian believers because they were not observing the communion table appropriately. And we're going to read about that. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, by the way, now we're going to read about what the judgment is specifically. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes when you see judgment in the Bible, doesn't your mind automatically go to hell? And it shouldn't. We, gotta, we need to read the context. He's going to tell us what the judgment he's talking about here. Verse 30, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. So what did he just say? Sin, personal sin here in the church in Corinth at this, in this season of the church's life was causing some to become weak, was causing some to become sick, and was actually causing some to go home early to be with the Lord. Literally divine discipline to the point of physical death, taking a son or daughter home to be with him. Now, why, why do I say that? Because some people will say, oh, how do you know they're going home to be with him? How do you know that they're not gonna face the lake of fire? Well, keep reading. Look at verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Verse 32, but when we are judged, notice this, judged in what way? This way of weak, sick, and even physical death. Notice the two C words there, at least in the New King James. For when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. See the difference in the C words? Chastening is what? Child training. That's discipline. That's what we call child training or discipline. God will child train or discipline if we don't judge or evaluate ourselves correctly. Why does he do that? Well, why do you child train and discipline your kids? Because it's fun, right? Yeah, I love disciplining my kids. No, you're trying to redirect them. You're trying to restore them to the proper path. That's the whole goal of discipline. And this is the Lord's goal. And, and not only that, so that they may not be condemned with who? The world, which kind of brings us to the fourth ultimate consequence of sin, which is eternal death in the lake of fire. And this is one of the things that, you know, as we talk about further here, I'm going to bring up a couple more points, but the wages of sin is death in all of these aspects, but sinning no more. What Jesus tells this man in, in John chapter five there in verse 14, sinning no more is only a possible solution to problem number two, problem number three but it's not a solution to problem number four. We gotta understand, that makes sense, right? If, if he goes and sins no more, then is he now sowing to the flesh or sowing to the spirit? So he's not gonna reap corruption if he's sinning no more. That's a solution to number two. Also a solution to number two is he's not gonna experience health consequences like he did for his current present infirmity. Going and sinning no more would solve that problem because he wouldn't be under divine discipline. But again, as we said in number four, Going and sinning no more has nothing to do with the eternal consequence of the lake of fire. Nothing to do. In fact, sinning no more is not the solution. There's only one solution to hell. There's only one solution to get you out of paying for your sins for eternity in the lake of fire. And that's trusting in the substitutionary death of the Savior. He died for you so that you wouldn't ha ever have to face that consequence. That's the whole point here. When we talk about this consequence, it can only be avoided by somebody if they put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's not about their effort and work. It's not about their behavior. It's about Christ's effort and work. 
It's about Christ's behavior. We trust in what he accomplished and we're delivered from number four. In fact, what we could say it this way, although there are still consequences for sin, the consequence of the lake of fire can never be put back on the table for a believer in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he took it for us. Either he paid it in full or he didn't. I'm just gonna take his word at it that he paid it in full. He paid that penalty in full 2,000 years ago. Sinning no more has no, absolutely no bearing on the sins I've committed in the past. I mean, just think about a normal judicial, legal system. If I were to go into a courtroom, and I haven't killed anybody, but if I were to go into a courtroom and admit to a judge that I killed three people, and I said, but you know what, judge? I promise I will not sin anymore. What's he gonna say? Well, I'm happy to hear that. That's good. But I still gotta punish you for the sins you've committed in the past, right? There's still a consequence there. Let's say I get the death penalty. And let's say in prison, you know, that I'm going through the prison line and they don't give me, uh, you know, a full scoop of green beans and I just go nuts and I kill the cafeteria worker. I kill a fourth person. How many times are they gonna kill me? Are they gonna kill me an extra time now? No, clearly there's one penalty to be paid. Whether I killed three people, four people, 20 people, 100 people, the death penalty is paid in one death. Now take that to the spiritual realm. How many of your sins did Jesus Christ pay for? All of them. What if you committed 10, what if you're a really big rotten sinner and you committed over 100,000 sins in your lifetime? Did he pay for all those sins? Well, based on the biblical revelation, yeah. What about 100,001 though? (laughs) Of course. What about if you committed 10,000? He still paid for those. In fact, how many times would Jesus Christ have to die for your sins even if you added another 20 on top of that tomorrow? It's just one. It's it's one death penalty. And so I'm making that point because it's so important to see that when he says to this man, go and sin no more, he's not telling him something to do to get saved. That's not at all. It's he's telling him something to do to avoid being crippled again or something much worse, which is about what he's about to say. So let's talk about that. As mentioned, the person's lifestyle before or after salvation has nothing to do with whether or not the penalty for their sin has been paid for by a substitute. Again, we're looking to a day in human history in the past for that confirmation. Not what I'm doing tomorrow, not what I will do 20 years from now, but what Christ did for me in the past. We're not given many details here. It does appear that his ailment is in some way tied to his personal sin. But I love the grace of God. Notice he didn't say, hey, promise to stop sinning and I'll heal you. What does he do? He heals him and then he walks away. And then he tracks him down later. And now he's talking to him about his lifestyle. He's given some instruction in terms of an opportunity going forward. He was basically warning this man, don't use your healing as an opportunity to go on sinning. And this is another reason here in the language that I think that his personal sin was what caused his infirmity. Because Jesus says, lest a worse thing come upon you. That that phrase, come upon you, it's in the middle voice. And it, in, in the Greek, it carries a reflexive thrust. So the idea is, lest you bring upon yourself something worse. See, it was his responsibility. It was his doing that had brought this on him in the first place. And he's saying, if you go and sin no more, if you don't, you may bring upon yourself something worse. Again, a, a consequence derived from his own personal sin. 
is communicated there. So what could be possibly worse than what he'd already experienced? Well, possibly a relapse in health, a different kind of relapse in health, possibly a worse infirmity, possibly even physical death. That could be a possibility. But the other thing we've got to consider, the text never tells us that this man put his faith in Jesus Christ. So the worst possibility could be eternal death. He could be saying, if you go on in your sin, you never trust in the Savior, you're going to face eternal death. And that would be much worse than even 38 years infirmed, right? 38 years in a handicap. What's really ironic about this is when you go to verse 15 now, Jesus has found this man. And what does this man immediately do? I mean, it's not to say that we maybe don't have all the details recorded, but it does tell us that right after this conversation with Jesus, what does he go next? He departs and he goes back to find the religious leaders. And now he's going to be basically identifying Jesus, right, in a, in a lineup. Okay, I, uh, hey, I met the guy. Here he is. This is what he looks like. This is where he's at. And he's basically selling Jesus out. Now, commentators have a field day on this because they're like, man, did he, was he that ungrateful? Or was he just trying to save himself? Or did he feel some kind of responsibility to go back since he couldn't identify him earlier? Now he wants to identify him. We don't really know his motivation. All we can read is what verse 15 and 16 tell us, that the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Since they were so interested in his identity before he races back to inform them, he departed, meaning he left the temple compound, and he went to actually track down these leaders. They were probably near the pool, because remember, they had seen him carrying his mat. They said, hey, you can't be carrying that mat. It's the Sabbath. Now he's in the temple compound. He's probably going back to find these guys. Again, we mentioned earlier, why would he race off to do so? It might have been to save his life. He was uh, potentially worthy of stoning at this point. But also, he may have been concerned about something that's going to come out later in the book of John. We don't know if it was an issue here yet, but we will say this, that a lot of these Jews were concerned that they had anything to do with Jesus, that they would be put out of the synagogue. That was their social connection to the community. That was their social connection to business in the community with other Jewish merchants. This was life revolved around the synagogue for these first century Jews. And so we see that in John 9, 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he, speaking of Jesus, was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Even the, some of the Jewish rulers, we're going to see in John 12, 42, let's just read it. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So that might've been a motivation too. One, he might've feared for his life. Two, he may not have been, wanted to be associated with Jesus for fear that he might be put out of the synagogue. To try to give the guy the benefit of the doubt, we'll give him the, the polite assumption, right? That in genuineness, he may have wanted the Jewish leaders to actually validate and verify this miracle. Validate and verify Jesus. We don't really know for sure. Whatever his motives were though, one thing we do know We don't know those, but we know how the Jewish leaders responded pretty aggressively. They were not happy, as we see in verse 16. In fact, we see two things in how they responded very aggressively toward Jesus. The very first one is uh, the text tells us that they persecuted him. It means to pursue or to prosecute. The word meant to systematically organize a program to oppress and harass people. One of the things that we see is that this is the actual first mention 
of this word in the gospel of John to describe the Jewish leader's hostile reaction to Jesus Christ. First time we see it describing this hostile reaction. You might say that this whole event really set them off. It's really interesting because it's the first recording open declaration of hostility against Jesus Christ. We're going to see this very healing be brought back up in John chapter 7. They're still reeling from this healing on the Sabbath in the confrontation that's about to follow in the lecture, in the lesson that Jesus is going to teach. So this became a major bone of contention. It's like going to the beach. And and I hate going to the beach, by the way. Some of you love it. And God bless you. I'm I'm happy for you. I hate going to the beach because I'm still picking sand off my body like three weeks later. And I just, I can't stand that feeling. It just just remains on you. And for whatever reason, this healing in John 5 that we're reading by, this remained a major bone of contention. They could just not shed this in their thinking. When they thought about Jesus, it made them angry. And it's still going to make them angry when we get to John 7. The other thing that's really interesting is John, again, uses an imperfect tense. The idea is this was ongoing persecution, Jesus. It wasn't just today. It wasn't just that day. That they were ongoing in their persecution of Jesus. Now, really interesting, and I don't want to get off (laughs) the rail too much here. But the second thing is it says they sought to kill him. If you do any type of Greek textual criticism, which many of us never get into that. I didn't even enjoy it really in seminary. There is a textual variant here where this phrase is not included in verse 16. Now that causes some people concern, but don't be concerned because it is included in verse 18. It is there in the text in verse 18. But regardless, the concept is there. They persecuted him. They wanted to kill him. What's interesting about their their response, once again, is they're not interested in the divine miracle right? They just want to punish what they consider is, is Jesus, this lawbreaker. So they're all about their own personal application or personal outworking of their understanding of the Mosaic law. One final comment here before we close out this morning. Notice the, the text goes on to say in the end of verse 16, because, it uses that phrase, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Notice that these things is plural. This is kind of interesting because I, I thought we were just talking about his healing, right? Just this man's healing. That would be one thing because he had done this thing. They were upset with him, but they could have been speaking about the multiple commands that Jesus gave, that he had told him to take up his bed and walk. The, those, that would be a plural thing. They could be talking uh, about that. It's also possible that Jesus had done more healings that day that aren't mentioned in our account. We learned that from John later in the book. He's like, man, I couldn't record everything about Jesus because it would basically, I wouldn't have enough ink basically to, to do it. There may have been some other things that Jesus had done that the leaders had heard about or even witnessed that day. But most probably John picked the one miracle that kind of broke the camel's back. This seemed to be the one that they were the most concerned about that, that kind of riled them up the most. Next week, you're going to see this dialogue. I call it a dialogue because it starts off. Again, you can look in your, your Bible. You can see a little bit more black text in verse 18, and then it's just red the rest of the way. So it's kind of a dialogue, but it's mostly a monologue. Jesus is going to teach, and he's going to defend his right to heal this crippled man on the Sabbath. And he's really going to make two primary arguments. Number one, his divine origin. Because of where he's from, he has the right to heal on the Sabbath. And then the second argument or, or evidence that he's going to put forward is his divine authorization. He's going to show that he got authorization from God the Father to do what he does. And God the Father has provided multiple witnesses of Jesus Christ, again, validating his origin and his authorization. And so we'll start there next week. Let's close with a word of prayer.
Lord, thank you for the opportunity to study this section today and just kind of trace this this event in the life of Jesus. And then uh, as we go forward next week, just looking at his dialogue, really with the goal of learning more about him. And so we pray that that would be a fruitful time as we continue to do that. We're just so thankful to the Lord Jesus for what he accomplished for us on Calvary. And we pray in his name. Amen.